The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Monday, March 9th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. The stock market had its worst day in over a decade, and that's in percentage terms, not the stupider sheer number decline. But the Dow did drop over 2,000, which is something, meaning something the president will notice. Because as much as Trump doesn't care about results or humans or truth, he is into the Dow. And so many Americans are into him unwaveringly. I wonder if that will change. So I could play the same mashup of misinformation coming from his mouth that you've probably heard a hundred times by now. You could get a test if you want one, because of course, no, you can't. We have this contained, because of course, no, you don't. I have a talent for this when he was talking about, I think, epidemiology. No, you have no talent. You are the human embodiment of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Jay Inslee is a snake. Great time to undermine faith in public servants. Although, I guess I'm doing that too. But I was quite taken with... When he said this Friday at the end of business, the tests are all perfect. Like the letter was perfect. The transcription was perfect, right? This was not as perfect as that, but pretty good. Okay. He is likening the government's capacity to handle the corona crisis to his administration's performance in the last crisis, the self-made crisis of impeachment. Now, I have to ask, I'd love to ask even a Republican, right, even a Trump-tastic Republican, like if I got Mick Mulvaney on the phone, if he could find a Wi-Fi hotspot in Nome, Alaska, or wherever he's been assigned, I am not buying this Northern Ireland thing. Anyway, if I could ask him, honestly... Do you want the president citing this in a time of necessary credibility? Because according to a Quinnipiac University poll taken about a month and a half ago, 53% of American voters said Trump was lying about Ukraine, 40% otherwise. This isn't about getting into an argument about Ukraine. This is him citing in a time of acute vulnerability, him citing an excuse that it is documented only 40% believe he's telling the truth about. So why does he do this? Well, you could say, well, all he really cares about is that 40, maybe 45%. You could say because he doesn't know how not to lie. You could say because he just doesn't know any better and he goes, bleh, and things come out of his mouth. But there is this phenomenon. In the past, when he has said false things, the lies were often rewarded. Uh, by the people who he wanted the rewards from, his base, right? Or at least he was not held to account because some percentage of the public delighted in the lies. The lies served many Trump voters if he was to downplay the severity of Hurricane Maria. That really fits into their worldview. That's what they would have liked to have happened. To say, ah, the media was castigating Trump unfairly about Puerto Rico. It wasn't that bad. The media was exaggerating. There's a lie that works for him, you know, by his own definition, or how his great North Korean diplomacy was going. Well, to an average voter, an average Trump voter, what's the real difference between Trump's make-believe world of fantastic diplomacy and every past administration's world of, well, it's really hard with North Korea. It doesn't make a difference to most Trump supporters, so they might as well say, yeah, the lie is the truth. He could tweet away past warpings of reality because the public or his public wasn't particularly invested in the reality being real. 
But this one's different. This matters to people, even Trump's people. This is not, oh, let us cause some stress to the media. Let us tweak the foreign policy establishment. This is most Americans, the vast majority of even Trump Americans waiting and being nervous and wondering what's going to happen and wanting someone to lead them out of this. Our president was never able to lead even his own people out of anything because his own people weren't really looking for leadership anywhere. They were a coalition assembled, in fact, to hold on to what they had, and he was in charge of making them feel right and good to demand that they still have it. The dynamic of corona is different, and Trump's normal antics won't be as easily excused. Which is not to say that the way this alters society won't mostly be in terms of anxiety and not actual death toll, and I will examine all of that in the spiel. But first... On the principle of tapping a great mind when faced with a great challenge, I called up James Fallows, who's been a journalist and actually a former speechwriter for Jimmy Carter. We talk about who might be next president, but before that, how the current one is handling his duties. James Fallows up next. So in the next few days, what my plan was, was just to gather some smart folk and ask them about the election, this virus, everything else. Let's lead it off with the smartest of the folk. James Fallows is the national correspondent for The Atlantic and the author of so many great books, including Our Towns and a book before that called China Airborne. It wasn't about the virus. He is a pilot, but still he knows about the virus. Hello, James. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. Mike, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Let's talk about Donald Trump and his honesty or lack thereof. My assessment has been it's a little surprising that more of the American public haven't held him accountable, although for some I think there was some game or sport in it. But if I have to really be honest, I would say that there was never the event that forced accountability on most of the people. Do you look at it that way? Do you look at it as his honesty at some point would catch up to him and this is maybe where it's going to happen? Yes, I would agree at sort of each stage of the reasoning. I agree entirely with you on the game and sport aspect. The people who liked him, it was owning the libs, it was pro wrestling, it was spectacle, it was all the things that we've known about Trump over the decades, but especially in the last now, I guess, five years since he announced his candidacy, and the ways in which they could write off most of the things which, quote, respectable, unquote, opinion thought were problems, whether it was you know, dealing with allies or you name your area where he was doing things that looked destructive. The people who supported him could say, ah, who cares? And we're really glad that Schumer and Pelosi are in such a a snit about it. But this, I think, is different. I put it in the category of something happens, at least one thing happens in every administration that nobody saw coming. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, say, Ronald Reagan with Three Mile Island and also his being shot. You know, both of those in the first couple months he was in office. And this finally is that thing, I believe, for Trump. And this has the feel to me both of something that is bad in economic and other terms and is politically significant in a way that all the other churned the past three years has not been for Trump. Right. And to think about a couple of events, for most people in their daily lives, whatever the Mueller investigation found or didn't find, it was an abstraction. I mean, Trump was president and it didn't affect anything except their 
pride in the country or belief in honesty. But even if you look at tariffs, that really was affecting some people. And you would think there there would have been a change among people who relied on the importation of steel. And yet there wasn't, I guess, because a story or narrative could overwhelm that. But this is a case where none of that is true. And to also give Trump a little credit, he has this understanding or this instinct for things. And he's always obsessed with the stock market. And this is the one, you know, you could add Hurricane Maria to that mix. This is the one event where the stock market is telling him, and by the stock market, we mean those the old Dow Jones is telling him you're doing a terrible job. And it seems like he always knew that if he lost the stock market, he lost America. Yes. And I'm thinking, you know, my wife and I have been making a film with HBO about our book. We spent a lot of time in South Dakota, including with farmers last summer. And the people who were real supporters of of Trump, they were simultaneously saying, yeah, our soybean exports are down, our cattle export and pig exports are down, but something had to be done with the Chinese and our president is standing up for us, et cetera. I think the combination of the stock market effects and I have the feeling it's as if we're standing on Earth and you can see a giant asteroid coming at us <laughs> and you know it's going to come like unto the dinosaurs. And I don't mean a giant extinction event, but just the beginning, the economic effects over the next months and probably year at, at least of all the cancellation, all the changes, the contraction of not traditional industries like steel and you know coal mining, but every sort of service industry around the world is being hit so hard right now by the ripple effects of the virus that I think this will matter in a way that the extra price that tariffs created. Right, right. More tangibly. The other thing, and to broaden it out to the Democratic race, so you think, okay, how does a crisis thrust upon us? How does that affect the kind of candidate a Democratic voter might want? And you also think, my God, at different times in the cycle, we might have a totally different candidate were this the pressing thing on voters' minds. Or, I don't know, maybe not. Maybe it's a lot more simple than we thought, and they were always going to come home to, uh, you know, Uncle Joe Biden. I'm impressed always by the unknowability of politics. So little things go one way or another, and, and they can have big effects down the road. And I I think it was not inevitable. If you looked at the field that was running a year ago, there were a lot of people you could imagine catching on to become the nominee from Kamala Harris to Cory Booker to Castro to any of the rest. It was a, a big field and a big tent. We now are down you know, to Biden versus Sanders. And I think, again, in the crassly most political ways, there are times where the political impulse is to roll the dice and shake things up. I think the specter of giant financial market crashes and economic contraction and pandemic disease, that is not a roll the dice moment. So I think that just crassly, this favors Biden as a known quantity. The people around him can say, yeah, let's let's sort of staunch the bleeding with Trump and get on to rolling the dice later on. The other thing it does is it maybe changes what the question is that is being asked in the election. And it also changes or clarifies to people what the role of government should be. It always seemed to me that for many Trump voters, the role of government was essentially like that worldwide wrestling mode, like just to say things to discomfort the enemy. To some people, I don't know, maybe they thought government couldn't do much. Now there's underlining In times of crisis, we really do need a competent government. And that wasn't apparent to most voters even a month ago. I agree entirely. And I think there's a parallel point, too, which weirdly I'll use Mike Pence as the illustration of, which is I I think it shows the role of government and also the role of teams. You know, the Trump era has been for his supporters a one man show. 
and he's the only person who gets in the airtime on his team and the rest of the Republican camp is judged by their fealty to him and willing to be the stooges or the supporters or whatever. I think now you have tangible evidence that it requires a team of people. And the reason I mention Pence is that he has actually done a way better job than I would have thought. In, in these couple of press conferences he's had of bringing on some experts, uh, starting with, with Anthony Fauci. And also there was a crucial moment, I thought, when Pence, two or three days ago, went out of his way to congratulate Gavin Newsom. That was in the same day when Trump was talking about Jay Inslee as a snake and a Democrat governor and all the rest. And Pence was saying, we are very grateful to Governor Newsom and his team. So I think that Trump is such a one-person operation. And Biden, on the other hand, we know his limits as a personal performer, but you have the idea that he would bring in an actual team. So I I think that will be uh, something that that will help him too. Right. That's an interesting point. Okay. Let us think about what kind of person would be in the Bernie Sanders crisis management team. I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't be that different from the Biden team, but if you go by what he talks about and what his values are, it's hard to exactly figure out what that would look like. That's a little uncomforting. The Biden team would be, you know, Ron Klain and probably Anthony Fauci and all the all the regular people who've got us through bad things in the past. And I should say, and you know, I, I've been careful to be <laughs> to be a man above above party politics when it comes to the primary race. I am for whoever gets through this and and agnostic among them. But And I think that, that Bernie Sanders, when he's had interviews about actual operational or crisis type questions, he usually gives a fairly thought through and crisis manager response. On policy questions, you know what his sort of shake things up answer is. But he, I think he would be a less kind of roll the dice figure in managing a crisis than one might think. But between the two of them, Biden has more of the established team. Again, Ron Klain would be the clearest example as the former Ebola czar, (laughs) which you wouldn't have thought would be a term that people would be clamoring to have. But now it's a good thing to have been the Ebola czar. Yeah, that actually sounds like a worldwide wrestling sobriquet. (laughs) So you you lived in China for a while and you've reported from China. What can you tell us about their response and what we should learn or not learn from it? I think there was an initial cautionary example there was a longer term cautionary example, and then there was something positive. The initial cautionary example is all the evidence that's coming out about how for at least a month they were covering up the facts. There's you know, all the sort of ways in which authoritarian regimes can suppress the truth seem to have been the case, that people, the doctors didn't want to report to the Wuhan authorities, and they didn't want to report to the central authorities, and blah, blah, blah. And so the lack of transparency probably made things a lot worse than they would otherwise have been. They went ahead with this giant festival in uh, Wuhan that infected a lot of people. That was bad. A second thing that is cautionary in a different way is the really a draconian lockup mode they swung into after that of, of locking up a whole province and having sort of cultural revolution type surveillance of whether or not people were wearing masks and just really strict measures of a kind that no democratic society would be able to apply as Italy is finding out now. I guess the positive example oh, here, here's what can you stand one more cautionary example? I love them. Yeah, <laughs> we need to hear them. <laughs> the really, really high fatality rate in Hubei province around Wuhan. I think illustrates what the medical authorities are talking about when they say flattening the curve. You know, the disease itself for most people is not going to be fatal, 
But if you have this flood of people into a hospital all at the same time, there are not enough doctors. There's not enough beds. There's not enough, you know, saline. There's not enough anything. And diseases that would not necessarily have been fatal can become fatal. And so I think that Wuhan was patient zero for that of having, you know, thousands of deaths because everybody was there at once. The constructive example now is they're showing the government, you know, has taken it seriously for this last month or two. And they seem to be making some headway. And they're now in a way, having a sort of pride in China moment of saying, we bought time for the rest of the world, which the South Koreans might have been using productively and the U.S. wasn't because the U.S. was just, you know, in its own concealment mode. Last question is on the media. I've seen you tweeting a little bit about this and I know you think about this. Is there a best practice beyond just let us be factual, let us be non-inflammatory, let us keep our heads about it. But I'm, I'm specifically thinking about using this moment to replay some of those uh, Trump statements and to demand accountability from Trump and the administration versus perhaps the cost of that where you create another fight and the large percentage of American public who believe in the Trump reality just disregard what the best practices that the media is trying to communicate. Do you have any advice for our fellow journalists? <laughs> no, that, that is a great and important question that I've been trying to think about because the worst outcome here would be if, if the coronavirus pandemic is seen as chapter 5 million in Trump versus the world or Fox News versus non-Fox News or just one more thing where there's no reality, there is only there are only sides. It's the Mueller report. It's Barr. It's anything else. And so I think bearing that in mind as the danger to be avoided because it will increase the chances that more people get sick, more people die, the economy gets hurt in more badly, et cetera, et cetera. I think that, quote, real, unquote, news media can do th two things. One is to consciously look for representation in the sense of more bylines on the front page or on the home page of the site, more people on broadcast outlets who are actual scientists and medical authorities. So if we just physically try to increase the tonnage or the proportion of tonnage when we're hearing from medical people and scientists versus hearing from political people, that would be a step. And the other is simply to bear this in mind as the risk. The risk that will really hurt all of us is if this is seen as the latest installation of the Mueller report. And there's nothing specific that means in the way you write today's story or tomorrow's story, but just bearing that in mind as the thing to be avoided. That's all I got. Right, right, right. If you have whole programs just asking questions, and maybe some of them are legitimate questions, but trading on, you know, people's anxiety and hatred of Trump, and you lean into that, and it's good for ratings, don't. That's a, that's a bad choice to make. Because it's a real situation we have. And, and although, obviously, this is different in a million ways from the post 9-11 situation, and I, I'm stipulating the differentness, it's similar in that there are real things to be figured out. The real things in that era were the roots of, of why the attack occurred and what the proper response should be. And of course, we made the improper response of invading Iraq. But after that, the most valuable journalist was saying, 
what has happened, what can we do about it, what should we do in the long run. So too, I think the real journalism now is saying what has happened, what can we do about it, what's the best circumstance in the long run, what went wrong and what can we learn from what went wrong and what's going right in other parts of the world. That would be my hope. And, and isn't it pretty to think so? Yeah. James Fallows is the author of Postcards from Tomorrow Square, China Airborne, Our Towns, Blind into Baghdad, and is a national correspondent for The Atlantic. Thanks so much, Jim. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. We are either underreacting or overreacting to the coronavirus, and vastly so. Okay, that might seem obvious. Yes, it's very hard to be perfect to get a policy perfectly right. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is no world in which our reaction with the huge stock market swings, with massive municipal shutdowns, with whole school systems suspended, there is no universe where that is the right and proper way to attack corona, but also to not suspend domestic or international flights, to keep the New York City public schools open, to not suspend the NCAA basketball tournament. I mean, let's just talk about that. In the last week, 100 NBA and NHL games were played over the course of the last seven to 10 days. Those were all played in the same size arenas that the first four rounds of the NCAA men's basketball tournament will be played in, the women's too. But there was no thought to canceling them. In fact, over the weekend, 120 men's Division I college basketball games were played in packed gyms. Two men's Division I basketball games were canceled, and those would have been sparsely attended anyway. Either we're underreacting, letting hundreds of thousands of people attend games where we know corona is on our shores, or we're overreacting, which is talking a lot about canceling one high-profile assemblage of people, which will be held in two weeks. South by Southwest, canceled. University of Texas at Austin Basketball, they drew 13,000 to an enclosed arena on Saturday. Both of those things can't be right. In New York, the schools are open. In Scarsdale, which is a suburb of New York, one of the richest suburbs, the schools are closed. Why are the schools closed there? Well, one employee of one school tested positive, and so that school and every other school in the district was closed. I do not understand. If it's that dire, how could you possibly leave open New York City schools, which have a million pupils, surely one or two of whom have to have come into contact with someone with corona? In California, this was the criteria they used to close a huge school district. Elk Grove Unified School District has canceled all classes and student activities, including a prom, for the next week. A spokesperson for the district said 11 families who have members who either work at or attend a school in the district had self-reported that they may have contracted the virus that causes COVID-19. As of yesterday, eight of them had tested negative, but results still aren't in for the other three. No employee or student tested positive, but a parent of a child did test positive, so they closed all of the schools. Elk Grove is the fifth largest district in California. The cancellation meant forfeiting one basketball team's playoff game, which meant the season would be lost, and parents were incensed. I think it's unfair. You know, these, these kids have, have worked their entire lives for this moment, you know, the state playoffs to win a, a, a championship. Yeah, that, by the way, was Marvin Bagley Jr., whose older son is in the NBA, but younger son just had his senior season forfeited away. We think they're trying to reschedule the game. Stanford and UC Berkeley will not have in-person classes for the rest of the semester, 
but don't the students all live in dorms? So they cancel classes because they can, not because it's the best way to protect against the virus, just the easiest thing they could do, but they allow communal living arrangements to go on, which are much more likely vectors of contagion. That will be hard, so they don't stop that. We're either overreacting or underreacting. It simply can't be the case that the optimal policy governing New York City subways is not to shut it down, but to keep it open, but to ask people to follow Governor Andrew Cuomo's advice. Uh, if citizens are making ma taking mass transit, uh, if you can move to a train car that is not as dense, if you see a packed train car, let it go by, wait for the next train. Same with the, uh, if you're taking a bus, it's the density, the proximity that we are trying to reduce. If everyone takes that advice, no one can take that advice. Meaning, if there is a crowded car that you shouldn't get into, that means the public health advice of not getting into a crowded train car has been ignored. In other words, it might be fine for the individual who zigs when everyone else is zagging, but the fact that everyone else zagged in terms of public health means corona has happened. As the guy who basically runs the subways, Cuomo can either shut him down, that's a bold move, he can clean them more, which is what he's been doing, he could run more of them to make sure that people don't crowd together on cars, or he can enforce some rules, actual rules about maximum number of people on a car. The whole try not to get into a crowded car if you can help it, that's either an underreaction or an overreaction. I don't think that take the subways, try to go for relatively empty cars, that can't be the optimal corona avoidant policy. Look, I do believe in taking precautions, but I don't believe in only taking the precautions that are easiest to take instead of the ones that are most necessary to take. I wonder if it is so necessary to close down every school in one district of 55,000 students where one parent was sick. I mean, how can it be that other institutions which have a much stronger connection to actually confirmed corona patients, how can they remain open? Over the weekend, Sirius Satellite Radio had a 24-7 corona station. It was excellent. It really was. Real experts from NYU Langone Medical Center was on. One guest was a pediatric infectious disease specialist, Paul Orfit. He is the director of infectious diseases at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He said some interesting stuff. I think the reason that people are so scared is they think this virus is uniquely capable of killing them. You know, we have, uh, by CDC estimates, between 18,000 and 45,000 deaths from influenza this year. We have 14 deaths from, from this virus, and, and people are treating this like it's a viral apocalypse, and I don't see it. I don't understand the quarantining, which I think is probably going to do very little to stop spread, given that there's a tremendous base of, of infection, i.e. asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, that you're not going to identify that's going to cause spread. I mean, this is in the community. It's going to spread. I honestly don't understand why. I think we've done a bad job of, of how we've educated the public about this because we've scared them to death. And I, I just think we're doing more harm than good and worry. Ofit says the problem with everyone being scared is that they flood hospitals with symptoms that don't necessarily need to be hospitalized. But guess what? The real patients who need the hospital can't get treatment. Also, stressing out about the illness makes you more susceptible to it, which isn't to say there's no illness. I did say more susceptible to it, more susceptible to the actual virus that's actually going around. If that doctor is right, we have overreacted 
because there are no bounds to the cliche, better safe than sorry. We often fail to recognize that too safe can also make us sorry. I have no way of knowing where this virus goes. I suspect by the end of this week, certainly by the end of next week, the idea that we're naming specific individuals as having the virus, it will seem like an absolute relic, sort of like the way saying, oh, Louise Brown, the first test tube baby, how that strikes our modern ears. I wish there was a unifying voice, one unifying voice, striking the right choices between not panicking, but not dismissing. And certainly this voice wouldn't constantly cover the speaker in embarrassment. I do know that this will all get worse before it gets better. And by that, I mean the virus, sure, to some extent, but the idiocy most of all. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi produced the gist all alone today. I mean, if she were truly alone, that would be effective social isolation. But what I really mean is that gist producer Daniel Schrader was off, perhaps distance learning from Stanford or Scarsdale. Go Big Red Raiders. The gist. I am postponing my elective surgery after my doctor told me he was thinking of using the elbows only method. Woo! Oomperu dapperu dupperu. And thanks for listening. <laughs>